On the Record with Gavin Riley. Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk. Now, when George Mitchell was describing his time helping to broker peace in Northern Ireland, he said, we had 700 bad days and then one good day, which changed the course of history. Um, The one good day, of course, was Good Friday uh, of 1998, the 10th of April, something which would be formally marking the anniversary of tomorrow. Um, But what people may forget, of course, is the fact that there were hundreds and hundreds of what um, Mitchell labelled as bad days in the run up to that. We often think of these talks as being things which slowly concluded uh, in more of a bang. But what we often forget is that these things came together uh, over the course of several years and several months. Um, I'm joined by David Donoghue. Um, he's the author of a book called One Good Day. David Donoghue is a former career diplomat uh, who was inside the room during all of those talks. Um, David, it's great to, to have you in and happy Easter to you. Um, you might remind us, first of all, before the One Good Day, talk to us about the bad days and remind us just how all these talks came to be in the first place. We had a sort of a process underway from about 1991 to two on. Okay. So then why did it take uh, five years after 1992 to actually get everyone to sit down in Stormont or what happened Well, there? a key point would have been that you had a different British government uh, in, in the early part of the 90s. Uh, in fairness, John Major was a, a courageous uh, politician and he he really tried to go for um, a, a, a comprehensive settlement along with uh, the Irish Taoiseach at the time. But he was dependent on unionist votes and it meant that his room for manoeuvre, as he judged it, wasn't really very wide. So that meant that we were able to make important progress, but it was not until the summer of 1997 when you had a change of government mm. in Britain where things really began to look better. So, so it, it really is down to the, the parliamentary arithmetic in Westminster that Tony Blair gets elected with a stonking majority and suddenly he is not as beholden to a unionist agenda and he decides, right, we're convening these talks and Absolutely. you show up or well, you well, don't. Well, to be precise, the two governments would have decided that. So all along it was the Irish and British governments acting in sync. They were really the, the, the joint motor of the process mm. and I should emphasise that that was the way the entire peace process was handled from you know the late 80s on. It was the okay. two governments working together. But you're right, Gavin, that uh, Tony Blair arriving in office with a big majority, Bertie O'Hearn arriving in office with, with a pretty stable majority as well, and the fact that the two of them ha- had already known each other before, add in the factor of Bill Clinton as a very, very well-informed and very sympathetic US president, it meant that mm. the stars were uh, favourably aligned uh, as of the summer mm. of 1997. When you all sat down in the negotiating rooms to start working on what ultimately became the Good Friday Agreement, as you said, it was October 1997, did you have a, a timeline in your heads for when it might all culminate or, or did you all settle in there going, this could be weeks or oh, Very good point. I think that the two governments had um, a reasonably clear idea that the talks should run for about nine months because we were, believe it or not, one of the factors that you always have to take into account is the marching season each summer in Northern Ireland, okay. which, of course, has the capacity to raise temperatures and, and uh, cause mayhem. So we knew that we really had to uh, finalise a, a potential agreement 
well in advance of the marching of the marching season. But you'd, you'd given yourself the, the 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 window between now and the advent of the next marching season, which is next summer. You said right, we need to get it done by in, then. In effect, in okay. effect. So I, I should there was an important extra factor I should have mentioned in relation to the summer of ninety seven. That is that the IRA renewed its ceasefire, and that meant that Sinn Fein were were back in the talks, which meant that we had an inclusive process mm. with with the loyalist parties there as well. So that was an important okay. extra factor in the summer of 97. But, you know, you're right. As of October, we were into uh, comprehensive talks. I must say, though, that we didn't really get down to business as distinct from talks until about March of what, what's, what's the difference? What, 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 is, what is business that isn't talks? <laughs> I'd love to be able to say that every time a politician stands up and uh, recycles uh, his or her uh, well-known position, I'd love to be able to say that that is serious business. The truth is that many parties will go in for what we call grandstanding, playing to the gallery, uh, where they're not really trying to find compromises or, or they're not really looking for common ground with the other parties. So we had a somewhat frustrating few uh, first few months and... Uh, as I say, it only really got going in March when there was a very clear sense of a deadline that had been imposed by George Mitchell, but with the full support of the two governments. Mm. George Mitchell, of course, who had been appointed as the, the independent chair of this whole process, the, the midwife, as it were. So then for the first five months then before you get into the talks, is it parties speaking to each other? Or is it literally just the parties going I, in say and talking to George Mitchell and company to say, here's where we stand, you well, find the common ground? To the extent that there were plenary sessions, and there were quite a few plenary sessions from October to December, there they were talking in a, a, a roundtable format, but I, I must say mm. they were mainly talking past each other. Yes, okay. Mitchell made uh, an effort with the two governments to try to put down on paper some of the the key things that we were aiming for. We knew that the agreement would have to have th- a three-stranded approach. That's to say, covering internal arrangements in Northern Ireland, mm. north-south arrangements and east-west arrangements. We knew, therefore, the likely structure of the agreement, but we weren't really getting into concrete uh, uh, options until, as I say, the spring. Mm. And that was because parties, in a sense, didn't want to uh, accept that the moment of truth had arrived. Yeah. When I say parties, I'm I'm not I'm not saying they were all equally at fault. Uh, one or two were certainly uh, um, uh, less willing to uh, face up to compromise than others. Okay. Well, without getting too much into uh, what happens behind closed doors. Um, people will obviously understand that there, there's the the wing of unionism, which is now in in its uh, in in power, if you like, the the DUP wing of we will have no quarter with this. We will offer nothing that concedes the ultimate Britishness of Northern Ireland. And as it stands at the time, we're we're against the devolution that followed. But on the other side, then you also have Sinn Fein and an ardent nationalist wing who would say, well, we kind of don't want to do anything really that legitimises British rule in the province either. Um, was either side more difficult than the other to ultimately sell the idea to or did you find that some were actually more accommodating than you thought? Well, each party had its own particular pressures and, and motivations. I mean, I, I think it would be fair to say that uh, the the um, the UUP, the, that, that was David, the party led by David Trimble, the UUP did want devolution, but they wanted it on its own terms. Uh, they, they wanted to go back to the pre-1970s version where if it's a unionist majority, then exactly. so be Exactly. They were shying away from um, anything which would give nationalism 
too strong a foothold, as it were, yeah. uh, within the governance. They wanted to. They, I mean, eventually they did agree to compromises, but so I would I would clarify that they were ready to go for devolution, but had their own idea of of how that devolution should work. And in particular, they were nervous about um, executive powers being administered either within Northern Ireland or on a north south basis. However, eventually they came round to seeing it uh, in 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 the broader mm. context. Sinn Féin, it's true, were never keen on anything which might appear to legitimise Northern Ireland and therefore they didn't get involved very closely in the detail of Strand 1. The STLP did that. So okay. I would have to emphasise that the STLP were very much the dominant national party. Yes, at the time. Nationalist yeah. party at that time. Yeah. Um, so then, what what is it then that sort of, I, I, this is an emotive phrase, but I can't think of a better one at just the moment. What is it then that beats the UUP down? What What is it that ultimately gets them to accept that local devolved government has to be on a cross-community basis? Is it the force of personality of somebody like John Hume or, or is it George Mitchell and company and people like yourself ultimately it, committing to them it that was it's the mixture, only way it's going to work. It was a mixture of things, Gavin. I think, to, to be fair, the unionists, or, or to be precise, the unionist leader, David Trimble, um, recognised the type of settlement that might eventually be needed if, let's say, points of particular concern to unionists were to be conceded. So, in particular, the unionists had always wanted uh, Articles 2 and 3 of our constitution mm. to be amended. That was, that was the bit that effectively amounted to and, the Irish state like the saying logic. that was Ireland. Exactly. And that it administered Ireland. Even and, though and so the logic was. of wanting constitutional change in our jurisdiction was that they should be ready to give nationalists some compensating uh, uh, movement and that would mean north-south bodies yeah. with uh, a, a, both a practical purpose but also some political resonance. So I think the UNIS leaders knew that something like that was ultimately going to be in the cards. So that meant in order to get, uh, I mean, there had to be a balance between devolved arrangements in Northern Ireland which would meet the needs of both nationalism and unionism. And there also had to be uh, north-south arrangements, which would meet the two sets Mm. of requirements. So it was a tricky balance to find. And and gradually, I think, you know, the two governments obviously put pressure on the various parties to face up to what an agreement might involve. So effectively then, as you're sort of describing it there, it is a lot of the proposed arrangements on the north-south basis, which when they fall into place, then suddenly everything else begins to work around So if I could try and sum up a sort of a dynamic for the talks uh, in the final phase, Gavin, it was very much the north-south arrangements which were key, that we needed, or we, if you know, the Irish government and the, the, the two nationalist parties, we needed to have very serious north-south arrangements to balance what we saw as constitutional change coming. Okay. In order to get that, we had to um, uh, insist at certain points. The unionists uh, realised that we needed that. Um, but f- when we finally did a deal in Strand 2, a deal in Strand 1 followed within about two hours. Mm. Then a, Strand 3 was relatively straightforward and then other bits fell into place. So the key yeah. thing uh, which happened in, on uh, around, around midnight on, Ho- on Holy Thursday mm. was that a Strand 2 deal was done. Yeah. After that, the bits of jigsaw fell into place. Which is kind of remarkable to think in hindsight that we, we now think so much about the nature of power sharing and those devolved institutions and and whether they will work in the short term or whether they have long-term futures. And, and ultimately, I don't want to say that they were an afterthought, but that they weren't the real 
they weren't the meat of what you were discussing at the time. It was the north-south relationship it did. and everything else then just kind of finds its own way. Exactly. It was certainly um, interesting or surprising that the last few days of the talks were dominated by the legal detail of the north-south bodies, the yeah. implement, implementing agencies, mm. and also uh, what policy areas they would cover. We thought that the unions might actually prefer to emphasise things like policing and decommissioning and mm. constitutional matters, things which were more obviously close to their hearts. But no, they insisted, if, if you like, the two days or so yeah. were taken up with uh, a long confrontation on that. And when the North-South, uh, the Strand 2 was, deal was done, then it, there was almost yeah. no time left for yeah. other issues because, because the deadline there, was there and you were well, ticking the into the early course, hours of Good Friday. The, yeah. the deadline had been, strictly speaking, midnight on the Thursday mm. night, but the truth was we knew we would be able to go into Friday. We also sensed that we wouldn't be able to go beyond Friday because it would then be the Easter weekend. George Mitchell made clear that he would be leaving, uh, whether that was <laughs> tactical or serious is another matter, but nevertheless, he, he was on record as saying that he was, he was going back to New York. So I think we all knew that it would require a superhuman effort to reach yeah. the agreement on the Friday, but we couldn't do it after the Friday. Yes. So in yeah. that sense, there was a sort of de facto uh, this this kind of hard deadline that couldn't be passed anyway. Yeah. Uh, and suddenly, I'm only realising that when we talk so much about Good Friday and its anniversary being tomorrow, April 10th, that really we should be talking about Holy Thursday, which is anniversary today. Uh, April 9th, uh, 25 years on. What is your overall memory of that? I mean, you describe it in the book, the title of the book being One Good Day, that that was the one good day that followed hundreds of, of bad days. Um, what was it, uh, or at what point in the, the day or the evening did you sort of go, actually, something's happening here, this is going to be the good day? Well, I think the, the, the first key moment was around midnight on the Thursday, the, the Strand 2 deal. Then uh, the Strand 1 deal about two hours later. Mm. Uh, we, we were up all night, so yeah. in a sense it became a bit of a blur. It was several days rolled into one. Then we began to hear that there was trouble with Sinn Féin in relation to prisoner releases, but eventually by the early morning, by about six, seven o'clock in the morning, we began to hear that uh, that Sinn Féin were, were happier with what was emerging. So I suppose, Gavin, we knew by about 8 o'clock, most of us, 8 a.m., mm. that it was uh, uh, perhaps going to work. And I remember Seamus Mallon, the late Seamus Mallon, uh, uh, when I asked him around 8 in the morning, how was he feeling as he climbed <laughs> up from the floor where he'd slept <laughs> for the, the whole night, or at least where he had yeah. tried to sleep, he said, this is the happiest day of my life. And in a way, okay, while allowing for slight hyperbole uh, in, in those circumstances, nevertheless, that shows what I'm saying, that we all thought the moment had come. Mm. Then there was a crisis relation to the Uranus uh, and the link between decommissioning, whether there should be a link between decommissioning and ministerial office and so on. Yes, that you were allowing Sinn Féin ministers to hold executive office while the IRA was still armed, albeit on Exactly, but of yeah. course that's re- that went back to the whole issue of decommissioning and whether it was an entirely reasonable position for Eunice to have taken up in the first place. So at that stage in the negotiations, we had reached a formula on decommissioning mm. which was never going to require that it happen by a certain date. Yes. But which was going to as long as it was committed express to an aspiration point, yeah. that in the context of implementation of the agreement that weapons would be decommissioned. Yeah. So that was the position that we had all reached. The units then wanted to improve on that from their perspective. They eventually got a side letter from Tony Blair, which roughly speaking did the trick for David Trimble, sufficient to him being able to say 
uh, to George Mitchell, I'm ready to sign the agreement. And that was certainly a remarkable moment. It's one that we didn't really see coming. We, you know, we would have to salute the courage he showed. And that came at about four o'clock on the afternoon of Good Friday. And that's why it's so, a Good so, Friday agreement. So even until that point, even after all of the overnight accords and all of the, the strands falling into place, that it was it was that afternoon before you knew for certain see, that the we leader hearing, of unionism was on board. What we were hearing, exactly, yes. What we were hearing uh, all through the late morning, the early afternoon, was that there was a major crisis in unionism with people like Ted Jeffrey Donaldson about to walk out and so on. That mm-hmm. Trimble was under massive pressure. And, you know, from previous unhappy experience, we felt that he might cave into this pressure. And therefore, you know, we on our side, on the Irish government side, were absolutely not optimistic that the agreement would, 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 uh, would hold. So that's why it was a genuinely pleasant surprise when we heard from George Mitchell around four o'clock, you know, you won't believe it, but David Trimble has just walked in. He said he's ready to go for the agreement. That's one of the standout moments for me yeah. and I suspect for most of my colleagues. Um, it sort of sounds like a lot of the day then with, with Trimble eventually deciding to get on board based on assurances from from Tony Blair, um, a Prime Minister who he didn't have a, a great grow for. What it underlines is that it all only really got over the line with a lot of good faith and people prepared to take leaps of faith in the room on the day at the time. Um, as a closing question, I wonder, 25 years on, do you think there is the same, watching from afar, as someone who's no longer involved in the day-to-day of all of that, do you think that there is still the same good faith across the communities today? Or do you think that a lot of the impasses that we have faced in the years gone past are, are simply because there isn't the good faith that was there to, to bring Good Friday into existence at all? I think there is good faith uh, among the two communities or between the two communities. Now, of course, you could argue there are more than two communities well, in, in, mm. in, in Northern Ireland. I think that good faith is there. Um, let's face it, we had a remarkable uh, coincidence of interests and, and, and viewpoints between the Irish and British governments at that time. That hasn't, of course, been quite the same since uh, Brexit in particular. But on the other hand, we're now in a more... Uh, um, optimistic phase, I suppose. But, you know, I, I would like to presuppose good faith on the part of uh, all players, in the, whether it's the British and Irish governments, uh, the, the, all, the, all sides of uh, the community in Northern Ireland. Well, let's see and let's hope that they do. Uh, David, it's been great to have you in studio. We better let you go. Thank you so much for joining us this lunchtime. That's David Donoghue, former career diplomat who was in the room where it happened uh, on the signing of the Good Friday Agreement. His book, One Good Day, is about the journey to the Good Friday Agreement and it's in all good bookshops now. On the record with Gavin Riley, Sunday morning at 11. Brought to you by PwC, a dedicated private business team built around you. It all adds up to the new equation on News Talk.